Hey Church of the Beloved, my name is Kevin Zo and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Just wanted to say a quick thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. Today's message is brought to us by Dr. Eric Redmond, who is an associate professor of Bible at Moody Bible Institute. He is preaching from Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. One of the most complex puzzles to appear in our lifetime is the Rubik's Cube. A standard 3 by 3 Rubik's Cube can have 43 quintillion, 252 quadrillion, 3 trillion, 274 billion, 489 million, 856,000 combinations. That's 43 followed by 18 digits or 4.3 times 10 to the 19th power as most of you know. The mechanical puzzle has... 43 quintillion possible combinations, but only one solution. Many people have spent hours trying to complete a solid colored pattern on all six sides of the cube, only to end up completely frustrated. Others go online to read instructions for resolving the puzzle or to find the algorithmic algorithmic code cracker. Still others... Tired of reading, computing, holding fingers on sides of cubes so as not to lose track of the last blue while trying to solve the red problem, they just peel off the stickers from a mixed cube and and put the stickers back on all completed. In 2018, to the chagrin of frustrated mechanical puzzle solvers everywhere, 19-year-old Yu Shang-Du lowered the world record time of solving a random cubic cube puzzle from 4.22 seconds to 3.475 seconds, becoming the first sub-four seconds Rubik's puzzle solver. Only a robot has solved it faster. So it would appear that at least one person on the planet looks at the complexities of the Rubik's Cube, has worked at it until he's mastered it, and now continues to enjoy it. I don't have any numerical factors in front of me, but I bet in the history of Christianity, there have been more than 43 quintillion ways of addressing the complexities of maturing in Christ. What is that formula? How does one sustain maturing in Christ? Why does a method toward maturity that worked for you not work for another? Or why does a path that worked for another not work for you or for your spouse or your child or your sibling? Why? If I am mature, do I struggle with sin or fall back into ones I thought that I had defeated, but they show up again when I am stressed or under pressure? What effort is to be put into growing, and what is my role as far as my personal desire to change? If I can't attain full maturity at some point, why do I keep working at it? But if I don't keep working at it, how will I know that, I'm a, that I am saved and that Christ is at work in my life? And if God is sovereign in my growth, why at all does it seem like my effort matters and so on and so on and so on? Come all the questions. Before you 
toss aside any hope of finding the answer to sustainable maturity as a Christian, like one who tosses aside a Rubik's Cube after hours of work and frustration, know that Paul has already worked out a solution for us. His solution will correct some misperceptions and well-meaning but false ideas about what it means to grow in Christ, ideas that all of us have. Paul's words today also intend to put works, desire, emotion, passion for growth, discipleship, and God's role in all the right places so that rather than being puzzling, maturity will be this great mosaic that displays the glory of Christ. For Paul tells us, that maturing in Christ is not like an algorithmic solution, but it is a pursuit. It is an all-out pursuit that Christ, or of Christ, that at the same time is not a pursuit of human effort, but a pursuit that we make only by God's grace as Christ makes the pursuit for us. Grace is going to come to the fore of how we mature in Christ. So let's look at Philippians 3. As we approach verses 12 through 16, it might be good for us to review 3, 1 through 4, 1 to see how our verses fit into this full passage. We know that we are dealing with the pursuit of growth as an issue of assurance. We know this because 4.1 is part of the discussion, and that is where Paul draws his conclusion to this section. He says, this therefore, drawing his conclusion, is how you stand in the Lord, my brothers. That forms a bookend with 3.1 in which Paul is writing for the safety of the Philippians. Safety from what? Safety from some who Paul labels dogs, who are working evil in the congregation at Philippi by promoting circumcision as the way to stand in Christ. Mutilation of the flesh. We know that mutilation of the flesh is a reference to circumcision. For Paul will next say, we are the true circumcision. This circumcision, in contrast to circumcision of the flesh, is spiritual circumcision. It is an identification of those who worship by the power of the Spirit, says Paul, who boast in who Christ is and what he has done, and who place no confidence in the power of the act of physical circumcision. It is an identity of those regenerated by the working of Christ. Paul will set himself as an example of one who could rely on works done by human power to maintain standing in Christ. He could place confidence in the flesh, but he will not. Paul's point is that getting circumcised or any other work done by human effort is not the path to growing up in Christ, and it will not keep our standing in Christ. But if that is so, then how do we mature in Christ? Paul tells us three things. First, pursue Christ 
even though imperfectly, as one redeemed by God. Pursue Christ even though imperfectly as one redeemed by God. Paul says, not that I have already obtained or am perfected. He has counted loss all works done by human effort that he could claim for assurance that he is standing on solid spiritual ground. He does it so that he might know Christ, that he might gain Christ, that he might be found in Christ. All synonymous terms in this passage. Yet, the loss and the gain do not mean that he has obtained spiritual perfection even as an apostle. The one who was the first to plant churches on European soil, who debated with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, who cast out demons, who raised a young man from the dead, and trusted Christ through multiple shipwrecks at sea and multiple episodes of 39 lashings for the sake of Christ. Even Paul the apostle says, but I am not yet perfected in Christ. If Paul hasn't reached perfection with all of that, then what? He says, but I press. The verb here for press could be translated as pursue. It is the same verb used when Paul speaks of persecuting the church. Paul actually was pursuing the church, but in the wrong way. He went all out to find believers, jail them with permission of the authorities, and he would have them put to death. He did it with zeal to try to save Judaism from that aberrant Jewish cult that was making inroads into the synagogues. In Christ, Paul has traded that wrong-headed, zealous pursuit for another in which he is even more zealous. He is going hard after Christ to grab hold of Christ and have full knowledge and gain that for which he longs to make obtaining Christ his own. Yet, Paul also indicates that he is not doing the work of the pursuit, but Christ is doing the work. For Paul pursues to obtain or apprehend because Christ has already redeemed him. Christ has apprehended him, he says in the text. Apprehended is an intensified form of the verb for take or receive that we sometimes translate with the word seized. Christ has seized Paul in salvation to make him his own. Theologically, we would refer to this possession or ownership as redemption, which includes being justified and declared righteous in the sight of God. It includes being adopted into God's family, and it includes being forgiven of all of our sins. Paul pursues hard after Christ, not to gain righteousness, for Christ has given that to him. Neither does he do it for assurance, for assurance comes with the package of justification and redemption. Christ has secured his salvation forever in the act of justification. 
Neither is Paul pursuing as the one finally responsible for his own sanctification. For when Christ saves, when he apprehends, when he seizes us, the work that he has begun in us, he will complete, Paul says in Philippians 1.6. Christ is completing the pursuit, the growth, the maturity, the conformity to the image of the Son in Paul, not because Paul pursues, but as Paul pursues. In other words, pursuit is a work of God's grace. On this verse, 16th century reformer, John Calvin notes, and by the way, it's always good to quote John Calvin. Paul adds that he has not yet arrived at the attainment of having entire fellowship in Christ's sufferings, having a full taste of the power of his resurrection and knowing him perfectly. He teaches, therefore, by his own example, that we ought to make progress and that the knowledge of Christ is an attainment of such difficulty that even those who apply themselves exclusively to it do nevertheless not attain perfection in it so long as they live. Calvin goes on to say, The clause, also I have been apprehended, Paul has inserted by way of correction that he might ascribe all his endeavors to the grace of God. Every believer faces the deadly temptation of trying to measure up to perfection while yet pursuing the perfection that only Christ can provide. The difference is subtle, but can be measured by examining our goals, like in a marriage. Let me explain. The question I have with every act of growing in my relationship with my wife, Pam, is, do I want Pam to approve of me, or do I simply want to enjoy Pam? If I am cleaning, cooking, arriving at home on time from work, honoring her in public because I don't want her to be upset with me, or because I want her to see that I am working to please her, so that she will be pleased with me, then I am not pursuing Pam. I am pursuing my own ends. I am pursuing personal approval. Then I get to feel good about myself if she is happy, but I get to be sorrowful or angry if she is not. However, if I'm just hanging out with her happy to be around her, rushing home from work to be with her, or taking a burden off her because I just like being with her and knowing her, I am pursuing her. And believe me, like all wives, she can tell the difference. The Lord, too, can tell the difference in pursuit to my ends of wanting him to be pleased with my attempts to please him versus pursuing him as the end because he is the chief end of my joy. Paul pursues not as one perfect, but as one imperfect, resting on the grace of our redemption in Christ. Second, Pursue Christ, thinking humbly and passionately as one summoned by God. 
Pursue Christ thinking humbly and passionately as one summoned by God. Paul writes in verses 13 through 14, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's humility runs throughout 3.1 through 4.1. Already he has noted that his resurrection from the dead rests alone on his union with Christ in Christ's resurrections and sufferings. He speaks of this in 3.10 through 11. Now, even in his all-out pursuit, he admits that he has not yet made knowing or gaining the fullness of Christ his own. He still seeks to know Christ relationally, emotionally, deeply, soulishly, with all his being in complete experiential union, obedience, and perfection, even after making a full pursuit for over two decades. Paul never settles, nor is he satisfied with his pursuit of Christ. That would be too close to being confident in the flesh. So he never thinks he has arrived, but still goes after arriving with full might. He communicates such to the church as brothers and sisters so that they might not feel that such pursuit is unattainable, but instead is available for those who, like Paul and all of us, have been seized into the family of God. So these words should have been encouraging to the Philippians, but I could see how they could be discouraging to, to anyone. Paul, the apostle, is still far from Christ, though he is chasing after him daily. No one likes to go hard after something and never attain it or have little effort to, to, or little to show for the effort. That is the frustration with prayer. When we have been seeking justice or provision or a change in a relationship, that is why a child quits a favorite athletic musical, dramatic, or other artistic activity after practicing as hard as possible and then not making the traveling team, the squad, the medal stand, the show, or the award ceremony. Some of you are familiar with that. It's just too much to go hard after something and then walk away with a moral victory in hand for great effort, the best performance personally, or giving the competition the fiercest battle ever. We don't want moral victory. We want the prize in hand. But in the Christian life, when we are seeking to be like Christ and have the enjoyment of all of our Savior's love, righteousness, peace, mercy, goodness, grace, truth, and everything else that characterizes God the Son— Giving up is not an option. It's not an option for Paul. Rather, Paul says he pursues. Again, in verse 14, he says, I press. And he does so 
passionately, not with any hint of resignation or concession. He says, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. The image Paul uses here is of a runner who understands that to look back at another runner would work against one's own effort to win the race. So the runner, nearing the finish line and wanting to beat out the opponent, leans forward toward the line, straining to reach it first. That is the picture of of how Paul pursues after going to be more like Christ. The picture portrays the passion with which he called the Philippians and he calls us to pursue after Christ. Nevertheless, with this combination of humility and passion, Paul does not think his own power of pursuit is what gains the prize of Christ in fullness. This is the prize of the calling of God upward to the very presence of God. God is the one who has summoned Paul to final glory when he revealed the gospel to Paul and in Paul. That is what it means to be saved from the wrath of God unto the glory of God. God has included the final prize in the initial offer so that we cannot mess up or miss what he has offered to us and provided to us in Christ. Yes, Paul pursues with everything in his being, but the pursuit and the prize again are the working of the grace of God. If you are listening among us today in person or online as an unbeliever, maybe as a self-proclaimed atheist or agnostic or one with no place for organized religion or as one who grew up in the church and leans on that for some sense of soul safety. Based on this passage and many others in Scripture, I ask you to drop your contemporary forms of circumcision on which your hope rests. What hope, you might ask? The hope that allows you to remain indifferent to God and his power to judge your soul. The hope that allows you to remain or to take the form of being reassured that you are striving to be a good citizen, maintaining moral niceness, contributing to the good of society, the well-being of your family, and giving generously to alleviate the suffering of others. These are very good works that you do earnestly and zealously. And I, for one, just want you to know that I'm glad that you are participating in these things rather than stealing the retirement funds of hardworking people or plotting terrorist events. I appreciate you doing all those hard works. Thank you very much for doing those. However, these good works before God are works, and they do nothing 
to gain you any righteous standing before God, even if they are anti-terrorism and pro-justice events. They are just as spiritually bankrupt as severing foreskins or as building a resume as impeccable as the Apostle Paul's. You cannot gain Christ by holding up your dossier to God and saying, here, creator, aren't you impressed by all these works that I have done? He is not impressed. Not by you and not by me. He is not impressed by the things that we have done or anything we can do. He certainly is not so impressed that he can overlook our sins, which are many. If you would be honest with yourself for just a minute, Mr. or Mrs. Atheist, God only is impressed by Jesus, who completed the work of salvation by taking the wrath of God in himself in place of you and me and in place of your and my sins and doing so while obeying God with absolute righteousness and perfection. Christ offers his righteousness to you freely when you place all your hope of heaven, all your hope of standing in the presence of God in Christ alone when you believe on him who God raised from the dead, the prize of Christ, the prize that Paul was seeking, and the prize in which we are all in pursuit. The prize of Christ is guaranteed Third, pursue Christ corporately as one awaiting revelation from God. Pursue Christ corporately as one awaiting revelation from God. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained, Paul writes in 3.15-16. through 16. Even in this final admonition, Paul's words are full of grace. He says that all those who are mature should think this way. So even though he admits that he and we cannot reach full perfection in this life, there is a sense in which we are mature in Christ. Let those who are mature think this way. The mature pursue after Christ imperfectly, humbly, passionately, all the while knowing that it is the working of God. We are working out our own salvation in fear and in trembling, for God is working in us to will and do of his good pleasure. Paul already has written in 2, 12 through 13. Paul called the entire church at Philippi to think of maturity in this way. It was a matter of corporate agreement for the mature to pursue Christ according to grace. Yet for those who could not see things as Paul was teaching them at that moment, Paul had full confidence that God would be the one to make things known to them. Paul did not demand that they pursue as he pursued the moment he taught them. Instead, as they were already apprehended, already seized by Christ, and already called upward by Christ, 
Paul offered to them to continue to stand in the grace that they were already experiencing. Sure, he wanted them to imitate him even as he imitated Christ and strove hard after Christ. But if they couldn't get it in gear at the time of the reading of this circulating letter, hope was not lost because God was already working in them. Here, please understand that Paul amazingly frees the Philippians from a burdening, cookie-cutter, assembly line approach to maturing in Christ. They do not have to try to turn on pursuit if they don't get it. It was okay for these believers to say, I'm not quite there yet, Paul, or that's too much for me right now. Or, that's a tall order, Paul. I'm not sure I'm up to it. My life is a mess right now, and I'm just trying to make it to the end of each day with my sanity and the little strength that I have. I'm just trying to figure out schooling for my children during the pandemic, or my role as a teacher or administrator or official. Paul, I'm trying to process learning about my loved one's participation in the LGBTQ plus community or to figure out how to let my family know that I have leanings toward this community. To Paul, that was okay for someone in Christ to say. God is the Savior. He would be the one to bring the believers to a place of understanding and growth. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal. It is an unfortunate truth that hazing takes place in sports, businesses, and families. The cycle of hazing in an entity retains ethos status because the members of the entity lie to themselves and say, this builds character, or this is how I learned, and this will make a man or a woman out of you, while we are really subtly exacting vengeance on that rookie, that freshman, that white belt, new employee, neophyte, or child for the lack of guidance and care we experienced at that stage. The truth is, we do not want someone to have an advantage that we did not have. Now, I get the martial arts form of hazing. If we pansy you at white belt and yellow belt, you will never make it to red or brown or black, for you will not develop the toughness needed for real physical punches, grips, and throws. I get that. But you do not help someone become a better baseball player by making him carry all the team's bags his first year on the team. Neither do you make a better employee by making her fetch all her resources ex nihilo because that's what you had to do as a new employee. The 
you must mature the way I matured mentality is prevalent in all of society, even in families. If you did without as a child, it builds character for your children to do without. And you're absolutely right. It builds the characteristic known as resentment, which is what you are passing to your child in mask of frugality and learning the value of a dollar. But Grace says that there are quintillions of ways for the creator to mature people, and it does not have to look like the way he worked in me. It might. That is a form of grace he gives to some through faithful parenting and faithful discipleship ministry as he wills to do. But if you think that maturing through the forms you use to mature is absolute, you're going to be one hurting parent or one hurting servant when a child or believer does not respond to your standard path of maturity. You know what we need to say and said? We need to say, God, do not let me try to manipulate another's maturity. I trust you to mature them as I am trusting you to keep us both in a righteous standing before you. Because our real motivation for the maturity or for their maturity is to hope that the disciple is really a disciple. But that's not up to me or to you. That's up to Jesus. Christ does not haze. No. Jesus. Jesus walks this earth and he takes on the abuse from people who said that he has a demon. He takes the pain from his own rejecting him. You remember that Jesus was rejected. In Gethsemane, he takes the agony of unfulfilled desire for something less painful. And he takes false accusation, flogging, spitting, and mocking with no need to make you or I go through the same, even though it was his path to glory. No, Jesus doesn't haze. He takes our hazings on himself on the cross. He takes death, all the while completely forgiving rather than exacting vengeance on us. And he gets up from the dead in power, offering life freely to us when we place our trust in him. Often adult believers fear we will lose morality and culture if we do not demand moral conformity by young people like all of us here today. I'm going to include myself in young people, even though I know I'm older than most of you. What then really happens? You have already seen it with your friends post high school. We lose children in church to the world by employing unnecessary ancient mechanics to a generation who has a social context of development that differs from the one that was ours in the 70s or 80s or 90s or even early 2000s. Listen, no one needs more Hosanna or Hillsong music. 
No one needs a large group Bible study to have growth or training union or a favorite Christian camp from your teen years. We all need Jesus in whatever creative means God chooses to reveal Jesus and whenever he chooses to reveal more of the loveliness of Jesus to us. So how do we put into practice Paul's pursuit when the mechanics are not described? I would suggest that we lean toward what the reformers called the ordinary means of grace. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 88, asks, what are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? The catechism's answer is, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Thus, for us to pursue at a minimum, we will maintain faithful weekly participation in corporate worship, including enjoying the Lord's Supper and celebrating baptism with those being baptized. It is these things that revisit, reapply, and reaffirm the gospel and is working in us as the gospel is preached, read, sung, prayed, displayed in the bread and the wine, and displayed in the waters of baptism. It is in these things and things like the Lord's prayer, which Christ commands, that shape our prayers and life to align with God's will in heaven. It is meditating on the word that tells me the character to embrace Christ so that I can live like Christ. So I will pursue making worship of him more passionate, attentive, prioritized, truthful, and spirit-empowered. Because to go after him is to say he is the worthiest object of my desire. I pursue by making time for him, knowing him through his word and prayer, because to pursue is to build a relationship with him in which I hear his voice and which I share my voice with him in utter dependency. I pursue forgiveness of people who have harmed me greatly because that's what Jesus did, and to gain more of Jesus is to do as he did. It is being obedient to his commandments because pursuing Jesus is to be obedient to him. Otherwise, I am not pursuing him, but I am pursuing my figment of him. There's nothing flashy about pursuit. Leaving the slough of despond to find missed morality Christian, still is the wrong idea. You do not have to change your job. You don't have to answer a call to ministry or mission or liquidate your assets. Instead, you will pursue Christ, getting up tomorrow morning to go to a job you love or hate, to play with your siblings or children, to pay your bills, enjoy your neighbor, try to figure out how to honor your aging parents more, send a birthday card to your cousin or maybe to your grandchild, share with your siblings, work on an exercise and a better diet, fail 
at some or all of these. Throw up your hands in frustration and go back to Christ for more mercy. All the while wanting more and knowing that he has seized us and summoned us to the complete working of the grace of God. I, like you, want Christ. I want more Christ now than I've ever wanted him. And hopefully a year or 10 years from now, I will say the same. I will not attain all until I see him face to face in all of his glory. But you and I are headed that way as much as God works in us, even as he is working in others. The puzzle of growing in Christ is complex. But it is not unsolvable, for Christ has solved it for us by his grace, even as we strive to know him better. Thank you for tuning in to this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us, you can visit our website at cotb.life. God bless and have a great week.